So this was uh, admittedly a little before my time, but there was a, a great radio personality by the name of Paul Harvey, who had one of the, uh, with the all, he was one of the all-time great storytellers in the age of radio. And my favorite story of his uh, was one he always told at Christmas time. It was a story about a man who was actually quite agnostic toward the idea of Christmas. The whole notion of God sending his son, of Jesus becoming a man, it just made no sense to him. And he was too honest to, to say otherwise. And so one Christmas Eve, when this man's wife and her family, they were getting dressed to go to church, he came to his wife and he said, Honey, I'm, just, I'm not going to come to church this year. Uh, I'd feel like a hypocrite if I did. Y'all go, I'll, I'll stay, and I'll wait up for you. And so the family packed up and got in the car to go to the Christmas Eve service. And meanwhile, this man uh, sat down at the chair in the living room to read. But outside, it began to snow. And it snowed and snowed. And, and after a little while, this man began to hear a peculiar sound in the house. It, it was a soft thudding sound, almost like somebody was throwing snowballs against the living room window. So he gets up to go and investigate, and what he finds instead, there's a little group of birds huddled together by the back door. These birds have been caught up in the suddenness of the storm, and in a desperate attempt to find shelter, they were trying to fly through the window. And so these birds are there on the ground in the snow, cold and in a panic, and the man feels great compassion for these poor birds. And so he runs out to the barn right there nearby in the backyard, and he opens up the doors of the nice warm barn. He lights a lamp in there so that the birds can find shelter there. But they don't. They simply flap their wings in a circle in a panic. They can't understand that he's trying to help them. So next he runs into the kitchen to think that maybe I can entice them with food. He grabs a loaf of bread and he creates a little trail of breadcrumbs from where the birds are to the nice warm barn, but the birds don't even notice the bread. They continue to panic. Then the man thinks maybe I can shoo them in, and so he, he starts to make himself really big and waves his arms and calls out to try to shoo them in the direction of the barn, but all that does is terrify the birds, they just flap around in a circle and come right back into their huddled mass. The man realizes in that moment, there's nothing I can do here to get them where they need to be. I'm a terrifying creature to them. They don't understand that I'm trying to help them. And then a very strange idea entered his mind. If only I could be a bird. If only I could speak their language and and, and show them, help them to understand what I'm trying to do, to show them the way so that they could be safe and that they could be saved. But I'd have to become one of them in that case. Well, just then, a faraway sound could be heard on the winter wind. It was the sound of the church bells ringing. And the man stood frozen there in the snow, listening to the bells, pealing the glad tidings of Christmas. And he fell to his knees in the snow. I love that story of a man wishing he could rescue these poor birds, but realizing he could only, only if he became one of them. And then finally, the truth and the beauty of the incarnation touches his heart. 
Y'all, the Apostle John wrote of Jesus in John chapter 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says, no one has seen God at any time, but Jesus Christ has revealed Him to us. And this is the meaning of Christmas. And y'all, I, I say this, we, we preach this actually pretty much every year with great intentionality because there's a risk for us, people who grew up in or around church, that when we reflect on the Christmas story this time of year, it's so, it's so familiar to us, it's a very easy thing for us to just kind of gloss over or to treat more as a kind of a, um, a, kind of a therapeutic, sweet, nice story, a story that we can picture on our, you know, on, on the top of our mantle with a nativity scene, perhaps. And we might miss, in that case, just the true weight and the glory of it all. And frankly, the strangeness of it. It's a very peculiar story. And so it's one for us that I think we need to look back with at fresh eyes each and every Christmas time. And that's why we're in Luke chapter 1 today. It's a very familiar text. But it's something I need us to see. It's something I need to see. That the sending of Jesus into the world, it's not just something interesting God did. The incarnation, God becoming man, it shows us God's very heart. It shows us who he is at, at the very deepest level, and it also tells us how God feels about us. And so we're going to look at Luke chapter 1. This is the angel Gabriel visiting Mary to tell her what God was preparing to do in and through her. And very quickly, before we read the, the scripture... We, we should understand that this encounter, Gabriel to Mary, this is coming on the, the heels of centuries of darkness and silence. Prior to the coming of Christ, we can see this in the Old Testament, God would routinely send prophets to his people Israel, men like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Nahum, Malachi, the list is long. Prophets who served as God's mouthpiece, they would go and speak to the people, calling them back out of their sin, turning back to faithfulness to the Lord, and yet the people routinely scorned the prophets. They did not listen, and so often they refused to repent. Well, then, from the end of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, to the beginning of Matthew, see, in your Bible, that's just one page. In reality, it was 400 years. And over the course of those 400 years, God did not send a prophet. He did not send an angel or any such thing. We've got 400 years, effectively, of silence. And so when we celebrate Christmas, we're, we're talking about a true explosion of light into the darkness, an explosion of sound into the silent landscape. If the people began to think, perhaps God has given up on us, Christmas tells us otherwise. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, Gabriel said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, 
for you have found favor with God. Now, immediately, this, this scene is intriguing. You know, when we think of angels, mainly through popular you know, art or, or movies, whatever it may be, we're typically thinking of something grand and spectacular, bright and shining, right? Even when we think of Mary, the Mother Mary, if you've seen you know, paintings of her, almost always she's at least got some sort of halo around her head. She's very bright and prominent, maybe as we think about her. But that's not the picture Luke paints for us, is it? Gabriel comes to Nazareth, which was a total backwoods town. Nazareth was the kind of town that barely even dotted the map. Some of us grew up in towns like that, right? That when you tell people where you're from, you've got to make it like six different associations to help them to place it on the map, you know? Nazareth was that way. And there in Nazareth, he goes to visit a very poor young woman named Mary. Now, who's Mary? This is really difficult for us because we, we've lived now on the other side of this story for so many years. But we have to recognize in this precise moment, Mary is an absolute nobody. And I don't say that to be insulting to her. What I mean is, we don't, in terms of the scripture and history, we don't know anything about this woman. Except that she was engaged to a man named Joseph, who was of the descendants of David. So Joseph comes from the line of David. That might have been a nice feather in his cap. But Mary has no genealogy recorded in the Bible. We don't know who her parents were. We don't know what her life was like. Y'all, we really aren't given much of anything about her at all, except what Gabriel says to her. You are favored by God. That's her story at this point. She's favored by God. Now, what does it mean that Mary's favored? Y'all, this is a, a certain kind of you know, doctrine that we depart from some others on when we talk about the mother Mary. There are people who believe that Mary was quite perfect, that she never sinned, neither before nor after Jesus was born. She was sinless, and therefore she was favored by God because she was, in essence, the perfect vessel through which God may bring his son into the world. Now, that's not a belief that we share. That's not something that the Bible teaches, and what I think, you know, when we talk about what it means for Mary to be favored, it's actually something greater and richer than that. Y'all, the word favor is a Greek word. Uh, the word is keratao. But what that word means is to be endowed with grace. It means God has poured out his grace upon you. And this is a consistent thread with how God operates throughout history and his interactions with people. God doesn't come to Mary because she's prominent or because she's wealthy. She's not an influencer. She has no celebrity. There's nothing about her from any human perspective that we would esteem her or think that she's great. Now, of course, we know that there's something special about Mary. She's, she wasn't just some random person off the street. Luke tells us, the Gospels tell us, she was very humble. She was very faithful. She was very godly. If you want to read on beyond what we see today in what's called the Magnificat, this wonderful song that Mary sings, it is truly stunning how much scripture she had memorized, how much she knew God and loved God from the heart. Yes, Mary was something special. But we don't get any indication in the scripture that she was the best of all the women in Israel or that she was somehow better than every other woman God had to choose from. God does not say to Mary, Mary, you've earned the right to be the mother of Christ. You won the contest. 
fear. No, what God says through Gabriel is this. I'm giving you favor. I'm endowing you with grace. And y'all, by the way, this is how everybody, anybody, comes into relationship with God in the first place, the very same way that Mary does. We don't earn God's favor by being good. That's why the word grace is so foundational for us as Christians. Grace is gift. Grace is unmerited favor. It's not something we can achieve. It's something we only receive. God's favor, His grace, must come to us freely, unearned. We don't receive it because we are good. We receive it because He's good. And so the way Mary comes into relationship with God uniquely here, it's the same way we all do. We are endowed with grace as a gift because God is gracious. And now Gabriel tells Mary what all this grace of God is going to accomplish now in and through her. Verse 31, Behold, Gabriel says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. So if, if, this, if we could somehow stop this scripture after verse 31, and that would be the end of the announcement. What we have in that case, that would be a very earthy, and not incredibly radical announcement. You know, the angels, that's, that's, that's unique. You know, we don't see angels all the time. But this wouldn't be totally different than some of the other stories we read in the Bible, like Abraham, for example, or, or even Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth, also in Luke 1, where an angel comes and promises a child. You will conceive in your womb and you'll bear a son and you're going to name him Jesus. If that's all that the angel had said, Mary might come to a pretty natural conclusion to say, okay, once Joseph and I are married, then we'll conceive, we'll have a son, and the angel just told us what we should name him, right? But right after verse 31, it becomes clear that something much more cosmic, much more supernatural is, is taking place. The angel's not just predicting the natural course of the future. He's speaking of something that God is planning to do. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of David, and his kingdom will have no end. Now again, y'all, if you're familiar with this story, it might lose some of its sting. Some of the sharp edge may have become dull for us. This doesn't strike us the way it ought to. It's just part of the Christmas story. Jesus is going to be born of the Virgin Mary, right? Yeah, of course. But y'all, just let's, let's all just pump the brakes for just a minute and consider what God is up to. And how truly radical this is. What Gabriel is communicating here is that the creator of the universe is about to send his own divine son into the world. God is going to come down to us. Now, all by itself, that's the most incredible announcement there's ever been. Nothing more important than this has ever been done. And the implications are universal. They're not limited only to Mary or her family or Nazareth or even Israel. His kingdom, Gabriel says, will have no end. God is making the statement of all statements right here in Luke 1. And so if the question is, okay, God's going to do this wonderful, miraculous, earth-shattering thing, how is he going to do it? 
And that's where this should really strike us and humble us. I'm, when I consider this story, I'm always reminded of this little scene in the movie Aladdin. If you've seen that cartoon. Uh, in Aladdin, you know, the, the poor thief Aladdin finds the, the, the lamp and the genie comes out and grants him the wishes. And the one thing Aladdin wants more than anything else is to impress the princess Jasmine. And he's convinced that the only way to impress her is for him to no longer be a poor thief, but to be royalty. That would impress the princess, right? Like attracts like. And so he wishes to be a sultan. And not only does the genie kind of turn him into royalty, but he throws this grand parade for him. And the genie's popping up every spot in the parade, singing and telling everybody how great Aladdin is, making sure everybody can see how truly wonderful this man is, especially, most of all, the princess, Jasmine. She's the one who is the target of his affections. And we look at something like that and we think, okay, that's how it's done. If you want to make a good first impression, you go big or you go home. And so if God's going to make an impression, if God's going to send his most important thing that's ever been done, if God's going to send his son into the world, how's he going to do it? Well, if we're writing the script, then it's going to look a lot like Aladdin, isn't it? There's going to be angels. There's going to be a great, uh, you know, a, a, some sort of grand staircase coming down out of the clouds made of gold. There's going, to be, there's going to be music and dancing and great feasting. There's going to be a palace at the bottom of that staircase because everybody needs to know that this is God's son we're talking about, the most important person there is, and that we ought to receive him as such, right? That's how it's done. The king has come. But let's be struck by this, that instead of all of that, God sends an angel into a town nobody cares about to a young woman no one's ever heard of and says, from your womb, you will bear a son and call him Jesus. He's going to reign forever. His kingdom will have no end. And yet he's going to come to us in the most humble, obscure way possible. The king of all the universe chose to enter into the world the exact same way all of us do. Crying, vulnerable, weak, messy, ugly, let's be honest. He made himself lowly for us to rescue those who are lowly. If God wanted to impress and make a show of his power, he could have done it. But he does the opposite here. And there's an indication, you know, when we, when we read through the whole of Scripture, we get a real clear sense of how God operates, and it's so vastly different than our expectation. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, gives us uh, kind of a, an, an idea of how this salvation works, and he says, God, listen, God chooses what seems foolish to us. God chooses the things that appear weak and unworthy in a way that we would never guess in order to bring about our deliverance. God does not operate by the same standards we do. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. And so this story is so sweet to us, y'all. I know it is. But we can't miss how radical it really is. Y'all think about when, when we have this, maybe if you have kind of a religious sense about you, there are a lot of religious people in the world who hold God in very high esteem, as we should. But so much so that the idea of God condescending, this idea of God coming down to rub shoulders with us, being born in weakness and frailty and obscurity, we cannot stomach that. We can't swallow that pill. 
God in all of his glory and effulgence and purity, he would never come down and get dirty like that. He wouldn't make himself uh, appear weak and vulnerable and needy because he's none of those things. And so we might be prone to think that if God were to come down, he's corrupting himself in the process. He would never do that. The Lord is pure. He's holy. He's perfect. How dare we make him so lowly in our own thinking? No God would ever rub shoulders with with us. But y'all, that's what the scripture tells us. And that was not God's plan B or C somehow. That was God's plan A from the beginning. He always planned from before the foundation of the world that he would send his son as one of us for the salvation of sinners. And really, we're given in this story, in the story itself, we're given a a chance to see how it is that God in all of his holiness and glory could actually do this and maintain his integrity, maintain his divinity, right? We see it in the story. Mary finally has a chance to speak. And in verse 34, Mary simply says to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? Now, that's not lack of faith on her part. She's just genuinely curious, I think. How can a woman who's never known a man have a baby? The angel answers in verse 35, and he said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Now, that's an amazing statement. The same God who created the universe from nothing. The same God who spoke all life into existence is going to bring life in your womb, Mary, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And see this, Gabriel says, for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. And so if the question is, okay, how is it that a pure and perfect and holy God can come down to us without being stained himself, without being corrupted, without losing his glory. How is that possible? Here's the answer. It's what we call the virgin birth. And y'all, again, I try to do this every year because I think it's so important, just a couple of very brief points on why the virgin birth is not a throwaway incidental doctrine for us. A lot of people find it too fantastic to believe, and so they discard it. And we don't. And y'all, there's a lot of reasons why. I'm going to give you three quick ones here as to why this matters for us. First, the virgin birth shows us plainly that Jesus' birth is supernatural. We could never say of Jesus that he was a normal, sinful person like the rest of us whom God happened to really specially anoint. And he gave him a special purpose above all other men. That may sound noble, but it's entirely wrong. Jesus is not like Moses or Abraham or David or Samuel or Saul or Solomon or any other wonderful hero of the Bible, great as they may have been. Jesus is altogether different. He is the divine Son of God. And only through a virgin birth, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can it be so. Secondly, we find in Jesus both the fullness of deity and the fullness of of humanity. When we say that Jesus is fully God and fully man all at once without contradiction or compromise. Now I'll admit there's some mystery in that as to how it can be so. It's beyond our total comprehension. 
But of course, that's the nature of God. If we could comprehend everything there was to know about God, then he wouldn't be all that great. He'd just be an elevated version of us. And so there is some mystery in this that we embrace, but we love the fact that Jesus is the fullness of humanity while not forsaking his divinity. He's conceived of the Holy Spirit, divine, and he's born of a woman. He's human. He's both in all of their fullness. Only the virgin birth makes it so. And then thirdly, the virgin birth shows us that the solution to our sin problem truly has to come from outside of us. The answer is not in here. The answer is beyond us. Uh, when, the, when King David spoke of himself in the Psalms, he says of himself, I was conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity. And what we take from that is an idea that says you and I, when we were conceived, before we were ever born, before you and I ever committed a conscious sin, we were already in need of redemption. We were already in need of salvation. We have never, ever been totally pure. Because the scripture teaches that we are, all of us, in Adam. That is to say, we are united with our first parents, Adam and Eve, who entered into sin, and sin entered into the world, and now we've all been corrupted by it, even from the womb. But not Jesus. Jesus comes through a woman, yes, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, not in Adam or of the seed of Adam. That's why Gabriel can say he will be a holy child. Someone has to come and be holy in our place. Someone has to come who is not corrupted, not stained by sin, so that those who are may be redeemed. And that's what Jesus Christ has done. He's entered into the world that through him we might be saved. A holy child, untouched by the curse. And y'all, there are a lot more reasons why the virgin birth matters, but I hope we'll see it for us. It's not dispensable. Jesus didn't trade being God for becoming a man. He comes as the fullness, the fullness of God, the fullness of humankind. And therefore, he is the only one qualified to be our Savior. That's why this matters. And so, y'all, earlier when I, when I shared this, this classic story from Paul Harvey about the man and the birds, I hope that would be a helpful illustration maybe for us. But it's also incomplete. By design, it's an incomplete story because this man could only wish he were a bird. And in reality, he can't speak their language. He can't understand them, nor can they understand him. And it's incomplete in his goal. Remember the man's goal, it was simply to get the birds into the barn, out of danger and into safety. But we don't apply all the same motivations to God. The purpose of God in sending his son was not simply to transfer us out of the bad and into the good. That would be enough for us, by the way. We'd take that deal if God said, by my grace, I'll get you out of hell, off the path to the bad place, and instead I'll put you on the path where you need to go. I'll get you into heaven. Man, we would all be overjoyed if that were all there was to it, but that's only part of it. Much more, in the coming of Jesus, this is God's way of bringing us to himself not simply getting us to a better place or making us better off, but bringing us into a reconciled relationship 
with God. Jesus came that we might know God. That's how he defines eternal life. Not as a place we inhabit, but as a relationship we enjoy. That we might know God and be known by him. Peter says that Jesus Christ bore our sins in his body in order that he might bring us to God. That's the goal. God wants to be known and he wants to know us. And so he makes a way through his grace, through his son. See, y'all, for God to be known, he has to choose to enter in. He has to make himself known. He doesn't leave it up to us to imagine what he's like. He reveals himself. And that's why Christmas is so absolutely essential. This is a crucial time of year for us to reflect on who God really is and how he's made himself known to us. Y'all, what the scripture tells us of Jesus is that he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Jesus himself says, if you have seen me, then you have seen the Father. God has written himself into the story. God truly has become one of us so that we might know him by faith in his Son. The holy child was born to Mary truly as the Son of God. We see it in his conception. We see it in his birth. We see it in his holy life and in his miraculous ministry, we see it, above all, in his sacrificial death on the cross and in his glorious resurrection. Y'all, the son who was born for us came ultimately that he might die for us so that by faith in him, we are rescued out of darkness and brought into marvelous light. Christmas truly is an explosion of light into the world's great darkness. An explosion of glorious sound into the silence. God has made himself known by becoming as we are. May we receive this free and abundant gift of his favor, his grace, this Christmas. As we now do each week, if, if, uh, if God should lead you to respond in any way, if you'd like to talk or pray, we're going to ask our pastors, Aaron and Evan, to stand by these back doors here. If at any point during my prayer or our next song, if you'd like to turn and just take them by the hand to talk, to pray, man, that's why we're here. We would love that opportunity. But for all of us um, this morning, uh, God doesn't stand aloof wishing he could save us. He's come near and he's done it all. And we can celebrate his grace together as his church. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning um, for my own heart. I pray for all of us. That, Lord, if we have any temptation to gloss over this great story because it's so familiar, that, Father, you would uh, bring to light in our hearts, that you would open up our eyes to the, uh, the awesomeness and the depth and the weight of what you've done. This is not a story. Father, you have acted in history. You have fulfilled your promises. 
Lord, you have sent your son. You've become as we are. You've entered in. And I, I Lord, I pray for us that, uh, Lord, that we would not become in any way numb or callous, Lord, to this great truth and to this wonderful relationship, Lord, that you've created for us to live in, Lord, to, to possess. We can know you. We are received, not rejected. We are delivered, not condemned. We are, are known, Lord, by name and loved. Thank you, Father, that you've endowed us with such grace. You've brought your favor to rest upon us. Lord, I pray this morning that, uh, man, I pray, Lord, that we would receive you man, woman, and child, all of us, Lord, receive you um, afresh, Father, that we would not take for granted the grace that we've been given and the joy that comes, Father, from, from knowing Jesus Christ, beholding his glory as the one who dwelt among us. Lord, let, it be, uh, let, let Jesus Christ be more real to us, more precious to us, let our devotion be richer and, and sweeter and greater than, than we've ever known as we experience your grace, Lord, this Christmas season. Father, thank you that the one who was born in the manger also died on the cross and rose from the grave so that everything we pray, Father, we pray with absolute certainty. You are our deliverer. Thank you. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen.